I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about Gaslight, which is a 1944 film starring Ingrid Bergman, uh, Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton, and uh, Angela Lansbury. It was directed by George Cukor and produced by Arthur Hornblow Jr., and it was based on a play by the same name, although there are several major diversions from that play. Alice Alquist uh, is a famous opera singer, and she is murdered in her home on Thornton Square in London. Her niece and ward, named Paula, is sent to Italy to train to be a singer herself. Paula's training is interrupted by a whirlwind romance with her piano accompanist, Gregory Anton. To fulfill his wish to live in London, Paula agrees that they should move back to her aunt's house, though she's still traumatized by the murder. To ease her mind, Gregory suggests they move all her aunt's things into the attic so she doesn't have to see them. Soon, though, Paula is not just traumatized, she also seems to lose things, forget things Gregory tells her, and takes things without remembering that she's done so. Because of all this, Gregory isolates her from the outside world, and whenever Gregory leaves her alone, the gas in her room goes down and she hears footsteps overhead. Little do either of them know that Scotland Yard's Brian Cameron has a newly rekindled interest in Alice Alquist's murder after seeing Paula at the Tower of London. Brian starts to put the pieces together, and so does the viewer. Uh, He comes to the house one night when Gregory is out and helps Paula realize that she is not going mad. Her husband is driving her crazy so he can search for the jewels he killed Alice four years ago. (laughs) And uh, gaslighting ensues. So... (laughs) It's an incredibly long game to get some jewels. Yeah. (laughs) I did find some trivia. I found a lot of it. I probably won't share all of it. But the term gaslighting, which um, is now totally in mainstream conversation, comes from this film and refers to psychological uh, manipulation and abuse, which we see in just in droves here in this movie. This is actually the second film based on the play and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer bought the remake rights and insisted that the existing prints of the first film be destroyed, even including the negative, but that actually did not happen because there are lots of existing copies of uh, the 1940 Gaslight um, available. Um, And I would, I guess I would be interested in watching that version um, just to see the differences. Me too. They're so close together and when they came out. I, I did see that come up in my research, but I didn't know anything about that one. Yeah. The first time that Ingrid Bergman actually met Charles Boyer was the day that they shot the scene where they meet at a train station and kiss passionately. They hadn't met before then. Um, and it, apparently it was kind of a frustrating experience for Ingrid Bergman. And after this film, in every every succeeding film she insisted that like if she was gonna have to kiss somebody on screen she had to like have met the guy ahead of time which seems like a reasonable obvious (laughs) yeah and so Charles Boyer was I I I saw competing uh stats about this that he was the same height as Ingrid Bergman or maybe even a little bit shorter and because she was um five nine and so in order for him to seem taller, he had to stand in a box 
several times during the movie. And in this particular scene, uh, Ingrid Bergman kept accidentally kicking the box as she like ran ran from the train into the train station. So they had to keep refilming it. That's hilarious. I also read that he was short. And I know they still do that a lot with Tom Cruise movies. Yeah. That he has to stand on a box. So. Which is crazy. Yeah. yeah, he, like, had to stand on boxes and he also had to wear shoes and boots with, like, two-inch heels throughout the movie. Which I'm like, Ingrid Bergman was not that... I mean, she was 5'9", but, like, come on, guys. And This is Angela Lansbury's uh, theatrical movie debut. debut. She was the daughter of a, an English... Uh, actress who had been who was a refugee from England and so as sort of a courtesy the studio said that they would um, let let her at least one of her daughters audition for this show uh, or this movie and um, that's how she like got this part was she you know as a courtesy to her mother she had been at the time working at Bullock's department store in LA and when she told her boss that she was leaving, he offered to match the pay at her new job, which, you know, is, you know, flattering. Except he didn't realize that <laughs> he was he, that she was going to be making not $27 a week, um, but $500 a week. So Ooh. needless to say, could not match it. Ingrid Bergman studied patients at a mental hospital to learn about nervous breakdowns and some of the, like, habits and quirks that became part of the Paula character came come directly from one particular woman. The aria at the beginning of the movie that Ingrid Bergman is singing in the first scene um, is from a Gaetano Donizetti opera called Lucia di Lammermoor, and the opera is famous for a, a mad scene in which Lu- uh, Lucia goes insane. So it's oh. a little like a little meta. The last bit of trivia that I'll share is that Charles Boyer really insisted on having top billing for this movie, and David Seltznik, who was, um, you know, in, sort of in charge of Ingrid Bergman's career at the time, like, in, like counter-insisted that Ingrid Bergman have top billing, and the way that the studio handled it was to suggest um, sandwich billing, which puts... The, a well-known female star in between two popular male stars in, you know, in the billing of a movie, which, like, I don't know, so misogynistic. But, like, the example they gave of, like, oh, this, like, works is what they did for the Philadelphia story with Katherine Hepburn, like, putting her in between the two male leads. Which she should have gotten top billing yes. for. Although I'm trying to think, in this movie, like, Watching it, who seems like they were more the star of it? I think Ingrid Bergman was the star, but yeah. But are you a little bit biased? I am very biased. <laughs> I'm extremely biased about that. So, like, I feel like Charles Boyer had more lines than she did. She might have. She had more screen time. I don't know. Anyway, misogyny <laughs> of the day. Surprise. Um, who did you bio for this movie? Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> I bioed Charles Boyer, and uh, I think this is the first time I've seen him in a movie. Oh. Misremembering. Hmm. I'm pretty sure this is. And this was my first time watching this, so I thought he was very good. Um, and I was surprised, because he was so good as a villain, I was surprised that he's actually sort of known as a lover, mm-hmm. as his, like, <laughs> regular <laughs> reputation. <laughs> so he was born in... Fignac Lot, France, the son of a merchant, and as a youth he performed comic sketches for soldiers while working as a hospital orderly during World War One, and that was kind of like how he got interested in 
performing. Uh, he went on to appear on the stage and in French movies throughout the 1920s, and then MGM brought him to Hollywood in the early 1930s to make French versions of American films. <laughs> and then he did the English language The Man from Yesterday in 1932 with Claudette Colbert and had a small role in Jean Harlow's Red-Headed Woman the same year uh, at M MGM. And then he returned to France for a few years to work, but he came back to Hollywood in 1935 and then began appearing prolifically in American movies. He was especially lauded for his roles in the romantic dramas The Garden of Allah in 1936, Algiers in 1938, and Love Affair in 1939. He enlisted in the French army in World War II, but the government eventually discharged him, saying he could better serve the war effort appearing in more Hollywood movies. Hmm. Boyer played in three classic film love stories at that time, All This in Heaven 2 in 1940 with Betty Davis. He was a ruthless cad in Backstreet in 1941 with Margaret Sullivan. Hmm. And Hold Back the Dawn in 1941 with Olivia de Havilland and Paulette Goddard. Hmm. And he was sort of like portrayed as the like glamorous, you know, male love interest, but in real life, he started losing his hair young. He had a pronounced paunch. And as you mentioned, he was noticeably shorter than a lot of his leading ladies. <laughs> I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but when Betty Davis first saw him on the set of All This in Heaven 2, she didn't recognize him and tried to have him removed. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. And, like, very Betty Davis. Yeah. Get this um, man off the set. <laughs> Imposter. <laughs> uh, in January 1942, he signed a three-year contract with Universal to act and produce. And then he had one of his biggest hits with Gaslight in 1944 um, with Ingrid Bergman and Joseph Cotton. But by the late 1940s, his cachet at the box office was waning, so he returned to the stage. And he continued to appear on stage and screen throughout the 1950s and 60s and also ventured into television as an actor and producer. He received four Oscar nominations for Best Actor for his roles in Conquest, Algiers, Gaslight, and Fanny, but he didn't win. Hmm. Um, and his final performance was in A Matter of Time in 1976 with Liza Minnelli and Ingrid Bergman, um, directed by Vincent Minnelli. He was married to British actress Pat Patterson, whom he met at a dinner party in 1934, and they became engaged after just two weeks of courtship, were married three months later, and the marriage lasted 44 years until she died. Wow. Yeah. And then on August 26, 1978, two days after his wife's death from cancer and two days before his own 79th birthday, he died by suicide with an overdose of secondol. Yeah. So I thought that was a very sad ending. And I had also read that his daughter died by suicide, too, at a young age. Ugh. But he, I mean, it sounded like he was kind of someone with a great love affair in real life, too, mm -hmm. to be married to the same person for that long. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. As, especially by Hollywood standards at that time. Yeah. I Well, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me, uh, when I saw um, Arthur Hornblow's name, uh, you know, as the producer of this movie, I went and just, like, looked him up because I was pretty sure he was Myrna Loy's husband. And, in fact, he was Myrna Loy's, like, second of four husbands, which I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. At a certain point, it's like, 
just don't marry them. <laughs> like, it's like, just, yeah. you could continue to have relationships, but, like, just don't I cannot get, them. yeah, just, like, you know, let it go. And <laughs> after, like, two or three times, I would just be like, I'm done. Two or three times. <laughs> I mean, I know people in real life who have been married four times, and I don't understand how they could maintain that hope of, like, this is the one that's going to stick. Yeah. But maybe I'm just more of a pessimistic person. <laughs> yeah, you and your five marriages under your belt. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie and um, what your history is with it. So I had seen this movie... A couple of times before, back at the the peak of my uh, Ingrid Bergman phase, you know, which hasn't died yet. But um, (laughs) I wanted to pick this movie because, and I wanted us to watch and discuss it uh, in this month, partly because it's, you know, a noir, you know, psychological thriller, I guess. So it like kind of fit with the like holiday or the Halloween uh, kind of feeling, but also because it's, you know, we're recording this right before the election and this like idea of gaslighting it like has really become mainstream i think particularly like during the trump administration because he does a lot of it and yeah so you know i have always because i saw this movie when i was probably you know in eighth eighth or ninth grade like i've always been aware of this this term and you know that it was based on this movie but it seems like particularly apt right now in a like kind of sick and sad way (laughs) so yeah seemed appropriate i thought it was interesting that we've done some other sort of thriller Mm -hmm. horror adjacent movies and this is the only one i found legitimately scary and disturbing Mm -hmm. like of everything that we've watched (laughs) yeah i mean there are a couple of moments where i was like i like hillary gotta like remember (laughs) You know how this ends. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's going to be okay. But like, I don't know if it was just like a testament to her, like Ingrid Bergman's like stellar acting, which she won an Academy Award for, you know, that, you know, like you, like, it's easy to see her as someone who has been driven mad by her husband, which is like such a terrifying thing to think about that, like this person you like f- trust as like your like rock and the world is actually driving you crazy. Yeah, it really was scary. And, you know, at the risk of sounding like a stereotypical millennial, I found it very triggering. (laughs) Just that, like, if you know anyone who has been abused in this kind of way, it's just, it was very upsetting to watch. Yeah. And I can't imagine what it's like to watch if you actually have survived abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I watched it in two parts, so I kind of, I stopped sort of halfway through when it was, like, peak, everything is terrible, and then just kind of lived in that world for a day, and then I, like, watched the second half, and I kind of wish I had just watched it in one piece so I could have seen the resolution, Mm -hmm. because I was like, oh, this is heavy, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I was also, like, expecting something slightly different because I have seen this as a play, you know, years ago, but at least, I don't know if it was just 
like an artistic choice of the version I saw or if this is just how the play is done now but the version I saw like leaned very heavily into comedy with it like it was still a thriller (laughs) but I guess you know when things were happening the audience was sort of in on the fact that you know the husband was doing things on purpose to make her think she was crazy so it would sort of show him like doing something and then like the gas would go down And the audience would laugh. Like, they kind of... The tone was different. Like, it was, Mm, like... mm -hmm. It was a little bit campy, if that makes sense. Mm, mm -hmm. And that... So I was expecting that from this. And this was not that at all. No. (laughs) (laughs) No camp. So, yeah. This was a lot, like, heavier and darker. Even just small things, like the idea of moving back into the house where you, like, witnessed Mm -hmm. your guardian's murder... More or less. I mean, she found her. Like, yeah. I couldn't even... Even without this additional, like, psychological trauma, I think that would be really hard to do. <laughs> so. Yeah, even even if you weren't being gaslit. <laughs> and I talked to my mom because we saw the play together, and I didn't remember this, but she said it was the only time she's ever experienced being in the audience of a play and the audience actually, like, hissing at someone. Oh, wow. <laughs> With the hissing at the um Gregory Uh husband character which I didn't remember but that you know makes sense for this movie yeah if you're gonna hiss at somebody please hiss at a uh uh an an abuser yeah well what did you think of the end where Paula says she wants to speak to him alone and then goes like is this a knife in my hand To me, that, like, showed, you know, not only was it, like, vindicating for her, but it also showed just the, like, like, the extent of her own, like, mental faculties that, like, even though she was, I'm not sure how to say this in a way, in the way that I, like, mean it, but, like, it showed just, like, an enormous amount of, like, strength once someone could say, you are not crazy, this thing that you are experiencing is because somebody because this guy is driving is trying to drive you crazy she could like gather her wits about her and be pissed off about it so that it like showed just her like strength and her like character and her like her incredible intellect to be able to be like like turn it around on him immediately be like uh you know I'm if I weren't mad I could help you but you know sorry bud (laughs) yeah I thought that I liked that because it showed that she had full knowledge then and that you know that she had the power it was hard to watch earlier in the movie because not only did he make her believe that she was losing her sanity but he also punished her for it like he treated her with this incredible cruelty yeah that was like an additional layer mm-hmm. of it would have been horrible no matter what but i thought like he could just make her think she was losing her mind and not also have to like humiliate her constantly yeah. and do all constantly. this additional stuff like that did nothing to aid his plan really no although like i i there's an a moment at the end where you know joseph gotten's character comes and is you know there to basically convince paula like hey your husband is your a your husband killed your aunt and b he's trying to find the jewels and that and he is driving you 
but he's trying to drive you mad in order to, like, get control of the house so he can get the jewels out. He doesn't have any, like, impediments to that. In the course of that conversation, the, like, the housekeeper lady, like, is brought into that conversation, is, like, brought up to speed. And then, you know, Gregory's coming back, so Joseph Cotton goes away, and he, Gregory calls Elizabeth, the housekeeper in and she you know initially like denies that there's been another man there while Gregory is gone and Gregory just like he proceeds to like belittle Paula and like do all the things that he has been doing the whole time but now Elizabeth has been has seen behind the you know seen what is actually happening and so you know he then like turns to her and is like don't do you understand what's happening and Elizabeth is like, oh, yes, I totally see what's happening. And it's this, like, great moment where, like, we know that she's, like, 100% on Paula's side. Because she, like, yeah. gets finally, like, what is happening to her. Yeah, I was like, thank God for Elizabeth at various points in the movie. <laughs> no. Well, and it's I such did... a, like, funny, like, if there's anything funny about, it, not funny funny, but, like, it is such an interesting, like, thing that, like, she has trouble hearing. And so she can't hear the footsteps. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I did think, like, the writing of this movie was very tight, and Mm -hmm. they dropped a lot of breadcrumbs. Like, everything kind Mm -hmm. of had a purpose that they mentioned Mm -hmm. early on in the movie, which I appreciated. You know, the glove, Mm -hmm. and the portrait, and her being deaf, all of that. Yeah, comes Um, back. So I like that a lot. I thought the hardest part for me to believe about the movie was that Joseph Cotton's character would just like randomly see her out and like just deduce like oh there's something weird going on here (laughs) just from like glimpsing her once yeah and then like make this whole um, investigation just privately to like figure out what was going on yeah that seemed far-fetched to me that he would invest that much like just on a hunch yeah I mean I guess like It almost seemed to me that he wasn't, at first he didn't think that Gregory had anything to do with it. It was more that like, oh, this was a, like a case that happened a long time ago that never got solved involving his favorite opera singer. And like, he sees this woman who is the spitting image of her and is like, oh, I, like his like interest is rekindled in it just to be like, oh, like, let me see if I can, like, now that they're back in London, I just want to like dig into a little bit. And then he sees Gregory, like, you know, he or he sees Paula's, like, hysterical outburst. And um, he's like, oh, maybe there's something more. Maybe there's happening something happening with them. I felt so bad how Paula was, like, consumed by guilt for thinking she was actually, like, losing all this I stuff. I know. So it many times so in this mean. movie I wanted to just, like, pluck her out of there. And be like, you do not need to stay with this man. I know, because they basically had, from her perspective, they had about, like, two weeks of happiness. And then everything after it was just him being horrible. Yeah. Which sort of shows you Marion haste repent at leisure. (laughs) Because it seemed like that was her first real love or anything. And they hadn't, like, been together very long. And then uh, I thought it was very creepy and telling in the beginning of the film when she's like, I just need to go away to sort of, like, get my bearings. And then he just shows up. Yeah. In the place where she is, even though she said specifically, like, I want to go alone. Mm-hmm. If you tell someone to leave you alone and then they show up anyway, that's a red flag, ladies. Let's yeah. just... Right. Let's not go there. Yeah. The point is to be by yourself and maybe miss him the whole time. And then you, like, 
feel better about it afterwards. But um, So she just seemed very inexperienced. And I know that the times were different, but I would have been so... Even if I, I didn't know that he was making the stuff up, but he still was just getting really mad at me about losing things, I'd be like, dude, I just lost something. Like, it's not a big deal. <laughs> like, yeah. just get off my back. Yeah. Like, if you think that I'm, like, losing things, how about you stop giving me things? Like, Yeah, and maybe, like, try to get me some help or something. Like, yeah, get me a companion that I like to, like, keep an eye on me or whatever. Not a, not a maid that I am intimidated by. Oh, oh yeah, and the way he flirted with the maid in front of her and then tried to say that she was ugly. <laughs> that was awful. I know. I know. <laughs> and the idea that any of them is are ugly is just kind of hilarious. I know, yeah. I did find the Joseph Cotton character very appealing in this. <laughs> my note And is, I don't know if it was... <laughs> my note is, Joseph Cotton is adorable. <laughs> he is. He's, He's so, so adorable. I think I have a crush on him now. Because this is the first movie I've seen him in where he plays sort of a, just a totally good guy. Uh-huh. Like, I, I remember in The Third Man, he's sort of... Yeah. He's sort of a jerk. Yeah. He's sort of a jerk, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's not a villain, but he's a jerk. Yeah, he's and not a nice guy. He often plays these sort of, like, complicated characters, but in this one, I was like, yes, I am on board. Yeah, and, and even at the end, at the very, the very, very last scene is him saying to Paula, like, oh, can I, like, come around and, like, chat with you at some point? It was very, like... Oh, he just wants to talk. Yeah, I liked that. And it sort of was implied that he was a widower or something mm. in the beginning. Yeah. Paula, that, you know, he or seemed like, like a good option. You mean because of those kids? Yeah. Didn't those kids call him Uncle whatever? Uncle oh, Brian? I don't, I must have missed that. But at any rate, he's like, you know, an uncle taking his, you know, niece and nephew or whatever out to the Tower of London. So. Yeah. Still. Family man. Still a good guy. I had forgotten that he played the Cary Grant character in the original Philadelphia story on Broadway. And then I was like, hmm, all checks out. (laughs) Makes sense. So what did you think of the Angela Lansbury character? I mean, I think she was, like, I think manipulated in some ways, too in like like subtle ways to like he was definitely a pawn of Gregory and you know which I think is kind of sad but I appreciate that she also was like she seemed to be like unapologetic about like how she was like spending her nights free like you know down you know at the dance hall or whatever and had a different guy every night. Yeah, I think I watched this with Mike, and he was saying, "Did Gregory hire her in part because he knew she'd be out every night? Mm-hmm. Maybe <laughs> and like couldn't corroborate things." Yeah, that very well could be. Um, it was interesting seeing Angela Lansbury so young; she was a baby. There's there was some trivia. I saw conflicting information about how old she was during the the film, but there was some piece of trivia about how she was 17 at the beginning of filming when she was supposed to light a cigarette in a scene and they couldn't film that scene until after her 18th birthday for like child Whoa. labor laws or whatever. And so apparently on her 18th birthday, she like came to set to the set and Ingrid Bergman had like organized a surprise birthday party so they like toasted her with champagne and then she went off to, to do the cigarette scene oh that's so nice <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know if that's true. That. But <laughs> women supporting women. That's right. <laughs> it's the opposite of this movie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes I forget how funny she is, too. Mm-hmm. Like, that she, you know, the other role we discussed with her on the podcast was in Court Jester. Mm-hmm. And she was really funny in that, too. I think a lot of times now we just think of her as this, like, motherly slash grandmotherly mm-hmm. figure. And she's got comedic chops. Totally. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Are you ready to talk about social justice? Yeah. I mean, there, I feel like there's two angles that we've kind of touched on. One is, you know, just, like, domestic abuse. Yeah. And... Like, helping the victim out of it, like, to realize her own, like, power and significance. And then the other piece is just, like, you know, Scotland Yard trying to, like, bring this murder victim to justice in a way. Mm -hmm. And to make sure that, like, you know, this guy who committed this heinous crime, like, actually has to, like, pay for it. Which, you know, I don't know if that really counts as social justice, but it's maybe the closest that this movie gets to. Yeah. The thing that struck me about this film was that the only reason that the ending turns out okay is because this abuse is connected with a murder. Mm-hmm. But yeah. if this had just been emotional abuse unconnected with a murder, I feel like it probably would have just gone unchecked. Well, and the murder of a, like, famous person, too. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, who would have taken an interest? Mm -hmm. The the isolation was very striking. Mm -hmm. Like, the way that she couldn't talk to anyone or leave the house. Yeah, so I I think you're right. I think there were social justice tones to it, but, like, it wasn't super strong. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of it was just about, like, justice, justice. Yeah. Well, and, like, in the whole, like, grand scheme of, like, where this movie fits in the, like, cultural vocabulary, I think it, like, definitely, it provides some, the term for what, you know, what this is so that people now can name uh, this, like, kind of psychological manipulation to say, oh, like, that, that particular kind of terrible behavior is gaslighting and it is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And and it, like, shouldn't happen. So there's kind of, like, a meta-social justice thing we call it we call it gaslighting now even though like we haven't had gaslights in a hundred years so yeah you would have to have a very strong belief in yourself I think to not be susceptible to that type Mm -hmm. of abuse yeah and like a strong like community around you that's yeah brutal (laughs) yeah very brutal not okay Um, i know i feel like we should give out like a hotline number or something at the end of the episode i've been living my own life making my own decisions for a long while now it's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again i actually i was thinking about the bechdel test and in terms of like two women talking to each other about something other than a man or a relationship i think it passes Mm -hmm. yeah because there's a lot of at least just discussion of like hey did you see or hear this thing that i'm seeing or hearing (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's not like positive interactions but they're definitely talking about things other than a man yeah and actually of the like five main characters three of them are women in this Mm -hmm. so yeah i guess it had a better chance of being one that passes well and there's the woman on the train that paula meets oh yeah she was hilarious yeah Oh my god, like the definition of an old Betty. 
Um, Miss Thwaites. <laughs> that's right. But they have a whole conversation that isn't really about men, right? It's like maybe eventually it comes around to that, but it's mostly about this like book that she's reading. Yeah, and murder. And murder. I loved the Diggy Biscuits <laughs> she talked about too. So yeah, this definitely passes. Yeah. Did you, have you read that short story, The Yellow Wallpaper? Oh my god. No, I haven't, and I don't think I will, because I've heard enough about it that I just have decided probably better not. I read it in college, and there's definitely a lot of similarities <laughs> between... And I think that, like, sort of prevalent idea from that time, you know, the time of the setting of the movie, that if a woman seems to be having some sort of, like, mental or emotional distress, that you just sort of, like isolate them and order them to rest and like not interact with people yeah which we now know is like very bad for people who are having mental health challenges yeah but oh, yeah um this like idea of sort of being hysterical and like well we'll just like have you rest all the time and being alone with your own thoughts great idea 24 7 will not at all exacerbate this well it reminds me of like in uh in jane eyre the mad woman in the attic kind of Mm -hmm. thing where like rochester spoiler has a first wife who is mad like every other woman in her family and his like solution is to lock her in the attic with one other person and that's yeah because that that's how you deal with people who isolate them uh, yeah And, like, particularly for women, it's, like, treating them like there's this sort of weakness. It's very paternalistic. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you need to rest. I will, like, make sure that you are undisturbed and just, like, stay in your room, basically. So I sort of found that triggering as well. Yeah, well, in that scene where he... He's telling her that he or she can't see uh, Miss Thwaite and her grandson, which is actually Joseph Cotton's character. You know, mm-hmm. she is mad about it, and you know, and is like, "I just want to you know, see these people." And then he like gets mad at her, and then he like twists it around to say that they're going to the theater, and mm-hmm. she gets so happy, and then oh, he yeah. like realizes that. Like, or he, like, makes up some kind of thing that she's done wrong, you know, that he, she's misplaced the the painting on the wall or whatever, and then it's just like, oh, no, we're not going anywhere. Like, you, you ruined this. Like, you don't get to have your, like, beautiful, you know, once in, <laughs> once in a blue moon, like, outing to the theater. Yeah. Which, I, like... Again. Oh, God, the I cruelty. Was, yeah, I was so devastated by that scene. <laughs> Oh, and how about the scene where she is, like, trying to leave the house to go for a walk, Mm -hmm. and she, like, keeps coming outside, but, like, can't make it past the steps? I know. That was also really hard to watch. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be like, listen, this is your house. Yeah. (laughs) You get out, talk talk to the crazy bitty living on the square. Like, <laughs> make a friend. Talk yeah. to somebody. Please make a friend. I mean, I think that that's, like, like, unfortunately, like, reflective of the time that it was, like, 1874, and, you know, she didn't have a lot of options. Yeah, it was so limited. Uh, do you not think that it is very... <laughs> 
Um, I mean, it's unbelievable, but I also believed it of this character because he was, the acting was very good, that he would murder someone, not find the jewels, wait for her ward to come of age, uh, move to where she was, court her and marry her, and then come and, like, look for the jewels, which he couldn't even resell because they were too famous. Yeah, I know. I was like, really? This is, like, why are you focused on this particular crime? Like, go steal somebody else's jewels and don't murder anybody else yeah like go steal something that you could actually liquidate (laughs) go you know live in bermuda or something like it's (laughs) yeah have some imagination (laughs) just to you know wait 15 years or however long he did to get her and then uh, yeah and then going through all the stuff every night obsessively Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was really the one who needed mental health help. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, past Bechtel. <laughs> well, what rating would you give it? I th- a four, I think. Yeah. Because, like, it was such a striking movie to watch, but, you know, I probably am going to have to wait another, like, 15 years to watch, you know, to watch it again. But I think in a lot of ways it's a, like, timeless movie unfortunately so that i thought all the actors did a really great job and the mood of it was consuming and the writing like you said was really good yeah i i agree i would also give it a four yay (laughs) i thought yeah the whole production was very well done it is difficult to watch like i would recommend it to people but it's not like a fun watch. Yeah, I would recommend it with a, like, here's your trigger warning. Exactly. And it also sort of struck me watching this movie after we watched Gilda, which also has Uh themes of abuse that, you know, the setting of Gilda was, Mm -hmm. what, like 60, 70 years later, and really it wasn't any better for a woman, (laughs) a married woman. The laws are a little better, at least here now, but it's still women are still very vulnerable mm-hmm. it's it's hard to look directly at it yeah but hopefully you know after this comes out we will soon be rid of the gas lighter in chief <laughs> <laughs> yes i hope so we'll see i mean it is kind of impressive how if someone says something often enough it can actually make you sort of doubt objective mm-hmm. truths. Yeah, um, it is amazing and sad <laughs> and scary. Yes, totally. Well, I'm glad that you picked it, Hill, because this this is an actual scary Halloween podcast episode. <laughs> For our next movie, we're going to put out a poll on Twitter because November 2020 may be a difficult time and we want to watch a comedy. So we're going to ask you to help us pick best one to take our minds off whatever gaslighting is happening <laughs> next <laughs> month so look out for that may it please the court i submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex follow the screen sirens on twitter at the screen sirens and leave us a review on itunes or soundcloud to help other people find us thanks for listening after all Tomorrow is another day.